hub and spoke audio collective hi i'm patrick cox and this is subtitle a podcast about languages and the people who speak them produced by quiet juice and the linguistic society of america it's a sunday afternoon here and if you're thinking I don't care what day of the week it is or what time it is when this thing was recorded. Just get on with the podcast. Fair enough. I mention it only because it's the quietest time of the week to do this recording. There's almost no traffic, no construction, no pedestrians. It's kind of lonely. But the noise, the incessant noise most other days, that's a sign that things, in this corner of the world at least, They're maybe not exactly returning to normal, but they are moving on to a new normality. I know that the pandemic's raging in many other parts of the world, and if you live in one of those parts, I hope you're coping. And I hope that this episode will transport you, just for a bit, to another time and place. Because I realize that's what we've been doing these past few episodes transporting ourselves. We've been dipping into the archive, picking out episodes that you can't actually listen to anywhere else. And the episodes that Kavita Pillay and I have chosen have been reported from places that we can't get to very easily right now, if at all. India, the Netherlands, California even. Today, it's Japan, where I first reported this in 2016. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, it's Patrick Cox here. And my friend Yuki is Japanese. She lives in the US. Back in her school days in Japan, which were... 70... Later 70s and early 80s. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Back then, in history classes, she learned, among other things, about the beginnings of the Japanese people. I thought um, people were coming from either Korea Peninsula or directly from China. And over the long period of time, we merge to build the foundation of the modern Japanese. I asked Yuki, what did she learn about the Ainu? It's spelled A-I-N-U. This is an ethnic group whose presence in Japan may have predated those migrations from the Asian mainland. So what did the textbooks have to say about that? Almost nothing. Hmm. Okay then, Yuki. As an adult today, I asked her, what do you know about the Ainu language? Do you know, for example, whether it's related to Japanese? I haven't the slightest idea. That was not part of my education to begin with. Well, today, Japanese school kids do learn a little bit more about the Ainu, but not much, certainly compared to what their counterparts in the US and Canada learn about the indigenous cultures around them. And still today in Japan, they learn almost nothing about the Ainu language. This is what Ainu sounds like today, stylized, totally unconversational. This is a rendering of a piece of folklore, an epic poem. The woman reciting it, she's elderly, and she speaks very little of the language apart from this and other poems memorized in her childhood. This is pretty much what's left when it comes to speaking Ainu. The Ainu people today, 25,000 of them, that's the government figure, almost definitely a low estimate. Well, they speak Japanese, with one or two exceptions. 
Today on the pod, whatever happened to one of Japan's original languages? How did it become so marginalized that many Japanese don't even know it exists? And why are a handful of linguists so fascinated by it? Anna Bugeva knew from an early age she'd be a linguist, just like her mom. I guess even before going to elementary school, I would be reading all these languages written in Cyrillic, was scattered all over in our flat. And that flat, that apartment in St. Petersburg, Russia, it was full of books and full of people from far away who spoke foreign tongues, Korean, Manchu, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Uzbek. So quite early I was exposed to really linguistic diversity and I never felt scared in front of other people. And we had happened to have this dictionary of Ainu dialects. Of course we had many books in Chinese and Korean. They had the dictionary of Ainu dialects and of course I started reading it. And so Anna wound up in Japan studying Ainu. She made a beeline for the University of Hokkaido. Hokkaido is the northernmost of Japan's main islands. It's considered the Ainu's homeland, though actually they settle in other parts of Japan too. But it's where most Ainu live, where some of them hunt and fish as they used to. Anna knew who she wanted as her teacher, one of a handful of Japanese linguists who studied Ainu, a man called Tomomi Sato. And he just got his job at this time. <laughs> he was just 35 and... I was his first student ever, I guess. And I don't think he has ever met a foreigner at all <laughs> that close. And he kind of hesitated, but he would say, okay, yeah, of course I know your mother shared it is also this dictionary. Well, you should be a serious student. You should be serious. I could barely speak Japanese, of course. I got accepted, you know, got into the club. Anna and I were in Sapporo when she was telling me this. Sapporo's the main city of Hokkaido, best known for its beer and its skiing. The Winter Olympics has been here. Sapporo derives from an Ainu word. It means river covered with reeds. It's also where the University of Hokkaido is. And so Anna wanted me to meet her mentor. These days, Sato is a highly respected Ainu scholar. Well, highly respected among people who care about Ainu, which in Japan is, frankly, not many. Anna was really excited about this meeting. Sato has had some health problems, and he doesn't see many people. Anna wasn't sure what he would say, how forthright he would be. There's so much sensitivity, she told me, around not just the Ainu language, but the whole story of the Ainu people in Japan. Like there was this group of people living in Japan a really long time ago who spoke a totally different language to Japanese, it's as if that's an affront to Japanese identity. So Anna thought Sato might pass his words carefully. As it turned out, he didn't pull any punches. Most Japanese do not know anything about the Ainu people and their culture. Even today, Sato told me, the Ainu are ignored. And this at a time when many other countries have changed their attitudes to indigenous people in the Americas, Australia, Africa, Europe, but not in Japan. Most of the Japanese consciously or unconsciously feel that the Ainu people do not exist in Japan. <laughs> the Ainu people 
do not have any meaning. Ainu is a language isolate. It has no linguistic relatives. Nobody knows where it came from or where the Ainu people came from. There are just theories and clues embedded in the language. Sato, the professor, had taught himself Ainu. Anna, his student, did the same. Except that Ainu is barely a living language. People say there are 10 or so native speakers left. But even that's an exaggeration. True native speakers, people who actually speak Ainu as their first language, as their default, that number, it may be zero. Anna says that since the 1950s, Ainu hasn't really been a spoken language at all. So you have to learn it by reading texts and listening to scratchy old recordings. And if you're lucky, you find some really, really old people who still speak a bit of the language and you get them talking. Even then, what they're passing on isn't exactly, how are you? Not bad. Can you help fix my iPhone? I can't access my emails. No, you're going to get recollections from childhood, maybe simple discussions with their grandparents, or more likely, folk tales that they learned by heart as kids. Stories and epic poems, like the one that I played at the start of the podcast. They would be able to recite quite long stories, like 30 minutes. Some would last for even two hours or whatever. Well, I've had such a speaker who I recorded with her 15 stories, folk tales. The longest is probably 40 minutes. Yes, but she was one of the last really fluent speakers. The woman's name was Ito Oda. This is a recording Anna made in 1998. Oda is reciting an epic about the Ainu thunder god. I don't know how is it possible. And can you imagine a person who is already 90 years old? Already, I, half of the time I would go to the hospital to work with him. In this session at the hospital, they get a little conversational. Anna asks Ito Oda to express the different ways in Ainu to say, Anna and Ito exchanged earrings with each other. But still, she was so happy about transmitting the language. Like, her own children or grandchildren wouldn't bother about it often. But there was some person from overseas coming to record it. And she would be coughing, but making an effort to really transmit the language. And, well, uh, sometimes people wouldn't... I don't know if they've spoken it at all normally, but they would remember these folk tales because some grandparent had recited it endlessly to them when they were a child, Absolutely. even if they didn't understand other aspects of the language. I think it was like that. It was uh, their lifestyle. So they would gather somehow in the evening. She described it to me. People in the villages especially, they usually visit each other quite often. So today you will be hosting two or three people, and what they would be doing is reciting this folklore because it was still part of their culture. And you know, some of the stories are even for gods, to please the gods, some are to amuse each other, and they would really believe that these are all true stories. So it was their way of 
their lifestyle basically probably their joy after hard work so that's the only possible way i think she would have learned it i can't imagine any other way at all oh that's really funny i got a couple of responses to that one is that I think I've become quite cynical about folklore. I, I've thought of it in terms of some kind of touristic trap that mm-hmm. gets presented, you know, like a bear, making a bear dancing. And there are these just these moments when people put on the costume, recite the poetry, and it's all dressed up in the folklore. And outsiders, tourists, it makes everybody kind of feel good about the richness of this culture, whereas in fact the culture is is dying or has already died off. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I shouldn't feel so cynically about it. It, it makes me sort of rethink that when I hear a story like this where the folklore was so powerful to its people that they could do something like recall you know entire lengthy poems yeah Yeah. but I think uh, that's one of the reasons why the language has lasted for quite long right if it extends the life of a language that's a pretty big deal Yet, when Anna and I went to an Ainu village a couple of hours' drive from Sapporo, and I recorded the woman reciting that epic poem, it didn't make me feel good. I felt as though she was putting on a fake performance for me. It didn't help that we were inside a replica Ainu hut. There was an authenticity issue, which I didn't want to exploit just so I could give my reporting a bit of local color, Nanook of the North style. But maybe I was interpreting this stuff the wrong way. I mean, why should this woman, who must have recited this piece of her own folklore hundreds of times, why shouldn't she appear grumpy and bored by having to do it for some white dude with a microphone? And remembering the words to those stories that can run longer than 30 minutes, that's extraordinary, like Anna says. Authenticity, it's a movable feast. So in this Ainu village, it's called Nibutani, Anna introduced me to some other people she knew, too. First, a couple in their 40s who were attempting almost the impossible, to bring back Ainu as a living, conversational language. Kenji and Maki Sakine are married. He's not Ainu, he's from the other end of Japan, but he speaks Ainu better than his Ainu wife. And so he teaches the language to young people in the region. Um, My Ainu is not, not as good as my English. But my role in here is uh, as a teacher. I have to teach. Shiri Fumi, Kore, Oh, This is an Ainu audiobook that Kenji helped put together for his teaching. His wife, Maki, she has the typical Ainu experience of the language. She tells me, in Japanese, that she picked up a few Ainu words from her grandmother who would switch from Japanese to Ainu in order to pray, to dispatch the spirits of the dead animals to the next world. And as she's telling me this, Maki is making yarn, pulling fiber out of elm bark. It's what the Ainu use to make clothes. She's not doing it for fun or for show. It's actually her job, which means she's immersed in Ainu culture even without the language. Now, though, she's learning Ainu with her husband, and they've taken another step. They're trying to raise their daughter bilingually in Japanese and Ainu. 
Maki says she really wants her daughter to speak Ainu. It's something of a mission, but she doesn't want to force it on her. It needs to be her choice. I don't exactly know what to think about this. I mean, it's tremendously admirable and courageous to try to revitalize a language just within one family. But maybe it's foolhardy, too. It's so much effort. And for what? If the family does succeed and they end up having conversations among themselves in Ainu, who else are they going to talk to? Anna knows of only one other family that's doing this. That's it. On our way back to Sapporo, we stopped by some other old friends of Anna's, another mixed couple. Koichi Kaizawa is Ainu, and his wife Miwaka, Japanese. They're in their 60s. The way Koichi sees it, the language is of course important to the Ainu, but there's no place to use it. They don't have any land set aside for them, no reservation, no nothing like that. Just partial recognition from the Japanese government that came actually quite recently, and some financial support for cultural activities. Koichi works on the land. He always has. Right now, he's working on a project to reforest this part of Japan with the kind of trees that used to be here, elm, spruce, birch. For him, the land comes first for the Ainu, as a right. Just winning the right to a stretch of land, he says, that the Ainu could call their own, that would be near impossible. Don't forget that Japan is densely populated, and you couldn't kick non-Ainu off the land. And anyway, he says, you can't force people to speak Ainu. Don't get me wrong, Koichi is 100% committed to all things Ainu. He just can't envision a future where the language could come back. Even so, he and his wife practice their own limited language skills. And they have a daughter who's making a successful career as an Ainu artist in Sapporo. I wanted to know more about the status of Ainu from Anna, the outsider. She's actually a double outsider to the Ainu and to the Japanese, which may have helped her gain the trust of the Ainu. What did she think happened to the language? Many languages die, but just like humans, they die differently. As she sees it, the disappearance of the language coincided with the disappearance of the people. She told me there are plenty of Ainu in Sapporo and other big Japanese cities, though you wouldn't notice them, which is, on the face of it, counterintuitive. It's pretty easy to identify the Ainu. They don't look typically Japanese. For a long time, people thought they came from Europe. But many Ainu have become experts at concealing their ethnicity. For a long time, it was semi-official policy among the Ainu to marry non-Ainu people so their offspring would look more Japanese. This is why that population estimate of 25,000 may be seriously lowballing it. If you go with that number, you're assuming that people are only too happy to declare themselves Ainu, to say, yeah, I belong to a discriminated against minority that has very few rights. This is one of the first things that Anna learned about the Ainu, this discrimination. And yes, it's kind of a universal story when it comes to indigenous people. But in Japan, it's more intense. The pressure to fit into Japanese society is just that much greater for the Ainu. I don't think they were ever really forbidden to speak in their own language at home. No, there was no such a law. Instead, a few decades ago, in some cases longer, people just stopped speaking it at home and stop passing it on to their kids. 
It was easier that way. It was their own choice, in a sense. But it was pretty much a forced choice. I mean, we all want good for our children, right? Right, of course we do. It's just that for most of us, we haven't had to make that decision. Anna herself hasn't. Her husband is also Russian, he's a translator, and their children, ethnic Russians living in Japan, they're not missing out on their heritage language. They've never lived in Russia, but they speak Russian because they had a chance to speak with their parents. They will not get punished for that or whatever, or discriminated. I don't know what would be my choice if that would be the case. So do the Japanese, people like my friend who didn't learn about the Ainu at school, what did they learn? What did history teachers tell kids about the early settlement of Japan? Would they essentially say, would the message essentially be that the Japanese were the original people of these islands? Yes, I think they were original, basically. That's the common view. Probably nobody doubts it. So there is no discussion in the textbooks of who may have already been there? Oh, no, no, no way. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. These are only the discussions between scholars. And some people... So, so, so wait a minute. So I, I, at my school in, in England, we learned about wave after wave of migrants who came and basically fought it out with the people who were already there and either got absorbed or won battles and took over the reins of power. But we very much learned that, as a result, the people who we are now are a tremendous mongrel mix of just one series of invaders after another. And we learn about that. But, but you're saying that the Japanese textbooks do not if, learn... And if they include that, that would result into the ruins of identity. But, yeah. but, but why? why? What is it about the Japanese identity that would be ruined? Its uniqueness, its homogeneity, because in fact it's not homogeneous at all. There are people who look like that, people who look like this. Actually, they're very different. They're not homogeneous at all, but nobody talks about it. There are some really cool things about the Ainu language itself that Anna told me about. Evidence in the grammar and the words that Ainu is a million miles away from Japanese. It used to be claimed that it was an isolated dialect of Japanese. I'll end with one example of how Ainu works. This word. This is a verb, but it's much more. A verb plus, or even plus plus. It means to throw or to unload. But there's all kinds of other information attached to this verb. Alongside to throw, you can also make out the Ainu words for I, fish, to, and shore. Anna writes it down for me. This is fish, this is shore, this is to, this is throw, mm -hmm. throw away. And this is the subject marker, well, the so-called I. Just ignore this. I was more than happy to have something to ignore. Anna told me it's called polysynthesis, this characteristic of including all the elements necessary to complete a clause or a sentence in just one word. It's not unique to Ainu. Mohawk, among other languages, has it too. Here's that word again. Okay, so in those few syllables is encoded the entire sentence, I threw the fish he caught on the shore. So, sorry, I unloaded the fish that 
somebody else caught on the shore. Yes, you can put everything into the verb. Anna Bugeva, a Russian who knows her Ainu, had to learn it before it was too late. These days, Anna is an associate professor at Tokyo University of Science, and along with a couple of colleagues, she's published an audio corpus of Ainu folklore, a collection of recordings of Ainu speakers reciting folk tales and epic poems, adding to what's already a pretty well-documented language. I took a bunch of photos in Hokkaido. There are pictures of many of the people you heard from in this episode. I'll post those with the transcript of this episode, which you can get by following the link in the show notes. If you like what you heard today, please do us a favor and rate and review Subtitle wherever you listen. Also, tell a friend about the podcast. Tell your mom. Tell your cat. Everyone counts. Thanks this time to Tina Toby and Alison Reed, also to the World Public Radio Program, where every weekday you can hear what's going on, not just in the US, but all over the globe. If your local public radio station doesn't carry the world, demand that they do, or at least subscribe to the podcast. Last but not least, thanks to everyone at the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, of which subtitles are part. Another Hub and Spoke podcast is The Constant. This is a podcast about our fraught relationship with the past. We think we're always learning from it, but seriously, do we ever learn from it? Look out for a pair of recent episodes called It's All a Lie and Don't Know Much About History both of which I loved. These episodes take us back to the year 1729, and actually quite a bit before, and a guy who declared that all of history was faked. Remind you of anyone from these times? Check out The Constant with host Mark Kreisler, along with all the other Hub & Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, the best way is on Twitter. We're at LingoPod. See you next time. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.